You're listening to Talking Threat Intelligence, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the new challenges of today's threat landscape. Each episode, we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners to share stories from the front lines of corporate security. And now, on to the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Threat Intelligence. I'm your host, Robert Value, and joining me today is Melanie Tresick-King, Associate Professor of Biology at Massasoit Community College. Melanie, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. This is really exciting. Melanie, I was really excited to have you on the show today. I absolutely love your recent article that you wrote in Skeptical Inquirer about debunking misinformation. I know from talking to a lot of people across the OSINT community and the security field that this is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. So I think listeners are really going to appreciate your perspective as a scientific educator on this topic. Well, I've had my own journey to this and have decided that debunking or understanding misinformation is a much better use of time than teaching students to memorize facts. So I want to jump right in now to the floater acronym that you wrote about in Skeptical Inquire, which I absolutely love as this kind of toolkit. How did you come up with this idea and what is it? So the reason I came up with this acronym, I was teaching the class about skills, not facts. So I had decided to teach a class that focused less on memorizing facts and more on skills. And the skills, three primary skills were critical thinking, science literacy, and information literacy. And the problem with that, of course, is how do you teach that? Like, what does that even mean? You get in front of scholars on critical thinking and ask them to define critical thinking, and they're all going to basically disagree with each other and have an argument about it. It is difficult to define and it's difficult to teach. And even more, it's difficult to put into practice. So even if you teach someone to think critically, when faced with a new claim, how do they think critically about that claim? There's lots of steps to this process. I was teaching the class with a toolkit from James Lett, who actually wrote in a Skeptical Inquirer, I think it was in 1990. He called it a field guide to critical thinking. And he had a toolkit that he used an acronym, Filters. It's a great acronym. It was his toolkit to, okay, here's how to evaluate claims. I was using this toolkit and, you know, 1990, most of my students, not, oh, they weren't born. Like most of my students have been born after 2000. So the the examples weren't necessarily applicable and it was largely focused on paranormal claims. So I contacted him and I said, you know, how do you feel about me updating this? And he said, that's a great idea. So, right. So I used his acronym and I updated based on how I was teaching. And my idea was an acronym that summarized these skills so that when students were faced with a claim, they had the ability to start from the beginning and in a systematic way, work through the claim to try and assess the validity of a claim. So again, that might be a good transition next into why don't we go through each one of these letters for debunking misinformation. So let's start with the first one I have on my list here, F, falsibility. Yeah. So falsifiability is there needs to be a way to disprove the claim or prove it wrong. This is the foundation of science. Actually, scientific claims should be falsifiable or able to be proven wrong. And this is one of those concepts that is the foundation of science, yet is an incredibly difficult concept to grasp. The students will think, well, if a claim is false, then it's not falsifiable. But actually, by definition, a claim that's been proven false is falsifiable. It's just false, right? With falsifiability, what we're really asking is, if it was wrong, how would we know it was wrong? If you can think of a way to prove it wrong, it's falsifiable. So what I did was I divided falsifiability down into the ways that something is not falsifiable. For example, supernatural claims aren't falsifiable. A 
somebody said a God or a spirit or something, um, I've heard, for example, that COVID is God's punishment for something. Can't we do anything about that. We don't know. No. It might be true, but we'll never know. There's no way to test that claim. There are exceptions to that. Supernatural claims that leave evidence. So if I say I could read your mind, we could test that claim under controlled conditions. Another example of a claim that can't be falsified is subjective claims. So things like values and opinions and morals and judgments. And people here confuse their own opinions with things that are facts, right? We think that an opinion that we hold is a fact and someone else's fact that we disagree with is an opinion. And that's not what that is, right? Opinion is just something that is a preference or a judgment or something that can't be proven wrong. For example, I think that kittens are cuter than babies, but that, that's my own personal preference, right? You can't prove that wrong. Okay. So subjective. Another example is the vague claim. So if I said, for example, that what star sign are you? Uh, Gemini. Oh, you're a Gemini. Okay. Let's say that your day, you're going to have an old love interest come into your life. And if not, maybe you'll find yourself in an interesting money situation. The Geminis tend to be extroverted, but at times you like to keep to yourself. Melody, you're describing me so well. <laughs> you know, I have another career as a astrologist. I didn't say anything. What actually what I said applied to everybody. You can't prove it wrong. And then the multiple out. You've tried to prove me wrong and I don't want to be proven wrong. So I'm just going to keep moving the goalposts forever until you can't prove it. Conspiracy theorists do this really well. For example, all evidence points to the conspiracy. If there is evidence that disproves the conspiracy, it was planted. Evidence that was missing was covered up. So like if a conspiracy makes a, a prediction and the prediction turns out not to be true, there's a reason for that. There's an excuse, constantly a reason. So it avoids falsifiability. Basically, falsifiability, the first step when evaluating any claim is, can you prove it wrong? If you can't prove it wrong, it doesn't mean that the claim isn't necessarily not true, but it does mean you should view it with quite a bit of skepticism. And also keep in mind that if a claim is not falsifiable, just because you have evidence for it doesn't mean it's true. Evidence to support a claim that can never be proven false is basically meaningless because there's no amount of evidence that can ever prove it wrong. Gotcha. Let's move on to the second one now, L, logic. Yeah. Logic is a bear. Basically, claims need to be logical. And the idea with logic is when evaluating an argument, what kind of argument is it? I tend to focus on logical fallacies because those are really easy to spot and a great way to identify a claim that might be misinformation. What would that look like? So for example, let's say that a health product says that it's all natural and that it's been used by people for centuries. So that would be an appeal to nature fallacy. Just because something is natural or not doesn't make it safe or effective or not. It would also be an appeal to tradition. Just because it's been used for a long time doesn't make it true or not. Other common ones are things like um, ad hominem. You know, so uh, scientists are just shills for they're being paid for this. 
Another one might be uh, appeal to emotions. Um, like we've already talked about appeal to fear or appeal to anger. You can basically appeal to any kind of emotion we have. Um, you can even appeal to things like happiness or patriotism, which isn't necessarily an emotion, but by appealing to these kinds of emotions, they override our ability to think critically. Another really common one is mistaking correlation for causation. You see this a lot in health misinformation, where they'll say something like these kinds of health issues have increased with our use of vaccines. For example, that's just a simple correlation to know whether it's causation, we need controlled studies. So logical fallacies are a quick and dirty way to try and assess if something might be misinformation. It doesn't mean that the claim is necessarily true or not true, but it does mean that we should view it with some additional skepticism. I like that approach with uh, the appeal to emotion, especially like once again, going back to mistakes I've made, Anytime I've kind of fallen for a piece of misinformation, usually it was, I have my political biases and stuff. Here's the outgroups I don't like. And then if there was anything in there that was kind of against that group, it was like, I'm much more likely to, to click like, to share that or accept whatever they're talking about. So I, I really like that point as a common tactic. If you feel yourself being emotionally triggered by something, then acknowledge that and try and determine if that's impacting your reasoning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's jump into number three now, objectivity. This is the hardest one. Honestly, of all of the rules of floater, objectivity is basically, um, are you evaluating the claim objectively? Are you being honest with yourself? Richard Feynman had this great quote. The first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. Most of us don't like to think of ourselves as easy to fool. We like to think of ourselves as good reasoners and right the positions that we hold we hold because we have logically evaluated the evidence so the rule here basically asks us to be honest with ourselves are we using motivated reasoning is confirmation bias at play what other biases might be impacting our reasoning that maybe is causing us to cherry pick evidence or causing us to discount other evidence so yeah objectivity is basically are you being honest with yourself uh, move on to number four, alternative explanations. Yeah. Alternative explanations is the idea that we want to propose as many explanations for our observation as possible and try and systematically disprove them, uh, apply Occam's razor if we can. So for example, let's say that one morning you wake up and there is a spilled glass of water on the floor and you think, you know, what caused that? So there's your observation. Your explanations might be any number of things. So let's say somebody broke in and knocked it over or a ghost knocked it over or an alien knocked it over, or maybe you slept walked and knocked it over, or maybe the cat knocked it over, right? So you have these different explanations for why that might be. Now you want to compare them with each other and try to evaluate them. I'm a big fan of Occam's razor here. And the problem with Occam's razor, it's a great tool, but it can be misused. So a lot of people think of Occam's razor as it's the simplest explanation, but actually it's the explanation that requires the fewest new assumptions is the most likely. It doesn't prove or disprove. It's just which one is the most likely. For example, the ghost explanation or the alien explanation both require the existence of ghosts and aliens, which may be true, but we just don't have any good evidence to support those. So they require massive new assumptions. Let's put those to the side. A burglar 
It could be a burglar, but there's no other evidence of the burglar. I do sleepwalk. It's possible that I sleptwalk. My husband tends to catch me and I didn't do anything else. So I suppose it could be that. I also have a cat who's a huge fan of potential energy and tends to knock things off the counter. And I've caught him knocking glasses of water off the counter. It was probably the cat. So now that we've gone through this process, we found a glass of water on the floor in the morning. We've proposed alternative explanations. We've applied Occam's razor. The most likely explanation is probably the cat, meaning we didn't disprove the others, but it was probably the cat. Nine times out of 10, probably the cat over aliens. Yeah. And the other thing about me is that if I can use a cat as an example, I'm always going to. So yeah. Let's move on to uh, tentative conclusions. Yeah. All of our conclusions are tentative. Avoid thinking our conclusions are absolutely set in stone. So what I have students do is set their acceptance of a conclusion from zero to hundred and avoid hundred so that even if we're at 99.9%, there's still a chance that we're wrong. And all scientific conclusions are tentative. This bothers a lot of people like scientific theories, a theory in science is an explanation that has a massive amount of evidence to support it and also has high predictive power. It has yet to be proven wrong. We don't ever prove theories in science. And so when I hear someone say, well, it's just a theory, what that says to me is they don't understand the nature of how science works. They're waiting for 100% certainty before they accept a conclusion. And science never offers 100% certainty. So we can get very certain. I like to say that science reduces uncertainty. It doesn't provide certainty, but we want to always leave ourselves open to changing our mind, have the humility to recognize that we might be wrong. It doesn't mean that we don't know anything. So if we're 99.9% certain of something, like for example, humans causing climate change, our certainty is like 99.99% of that. Could we be wrong? Sure. The chances are very, very, very small. Or I think about like relativity. We've got a lot of evidence backing that up, but we just need that one experiment one day to come in, I suppose, and throw it all at the bathwater, which doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. Einstein said, no amount of experimentation can ever prove me right, but a single experiment can prove me wrong. All right. Let's move on to our second last one here. Evidence. E. Yeah. I mean, that's what this is all about, right? Is evidence. So do we have evidence to support our claim here and how good is the evidence? So with evidence, we want to know, is the evidence reliable? Did it come from a reliable source? Was the experiment reliable? In science, certain studies provide better evidence than others. For example, a randomized control trial would provide better evidence than an observational study. Anecdotes don't provide very strong evidence at all. Meta-analyses and systematic reviews that put all the evidence together provide the best kind of evidence. And even things like sources. So the New York Times would be a better source than some random YouTube. World news on my, (laughs) the cashier checkout. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So one of those is definitely more reliable than the others. Also, we want to know, is the evidence comprehensive? Are we looking at the body of evidence? You can cherry pick evidence to make any claim to support any claim, but are we looking at the full body of evidence? And so I like to use the analogy of a puzzle. So if we think about the pieces of evidence, like a puzzle, we want to look at the full puzzle, not the individual pieces. And then is the evidence sufficient? So with skepticism, what we want to do is proportion our acceptance of a claim to the evidence that we have. So is the evidence sufficient? Anecdotes 
are never sufficient. I saw it. I know people trust their personal experiences, but you know, Feynman told us we are the easiest person to fool. So anecdotes aren't sufficient. Um, appeals to authority aren't sufficient. And extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So if I said, for example, that it was a ghost that knocked over that glass of water, that is an extraordinary claim. We don't have good evidence for the existence of ghosts. So for you to accept that claim, I would hope that you would ask for sufficient evidence for the existence of ghosts. It would be a very high bar. It's a very high bar. Yes. Let's move on to the last one now, reproducibility. So reproducibility is we need to be able to reproduce any evidence that we have. So nature is consistent. We would expect the evidence that we have to be consistent as well. If we get different evidence, then something is wrong. So reproducibility safeguards against error. I mean, we're human. We make errors. Coincidence. So random things can happen in experimentation, but does it happen again? And also fraud. Fraud is harder to catch, but it does get caught in the process of science. And actually, this is one of the strengths of science. People think sometimes that, well, the scientist was caught with manipulating data or something, but that means science doesn't work. But actually, it means that the process worked. We found it. The process of science found it. It can take time. Right. I'm just trying to think of this as like an intelligence context. So, you know, if I hear there uh, on a social media that there has been, you know, a bombing in central London and it's just one anonymous account that's publishing this, I'm not going to take that very seriously. But if I see 10 different accounts all reporting the same thing, and then on a different website, they're talking about the same thing. And on top, then I'm like, okay, my confidence in this claim has skyrocketed for whether or not it's true. Yeah, that's an excellent example. We're seeing it right now with the bar school shooting, because there's, we're trying to figure out what happened. Mm. And right now on my social media, I'm seeing all kinds of people making claims about what the police were doing during the shooting. And I don't know how those will turn out in the end. We need to make sure that we don't rush to judgment based on our own confirmation bias, based on the people that we think that we trust and wait for better evidence to confirm so that we have a more reliable conclusion. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole on the shootings, but I've had a, a couple of guests now who are kind of either have insider information to, to previous shootings or they've done a lot of research on these topics and what they see initially reported in the media and what actually turns out to be true. The discrepancies, especially right after the fact, it's just, I don't even pay attention to these for the first 48, 72 hours because everything that's coming out is just gobbledygook, at least from what I've seen previously. <laughs> One of the tools that I give students to help them fact check these kinds of claims, um, after one of these events, we're in a time where everybody has cell phones, individuals have videos, everybody has the ability to make statements and claims about what is happening. And it can be really chaotic trying to figure out what happened. And so one of the tools that I give students to evaluate these claims is called lateral searching. Most students have been taught to fact check by what's called vertical reading or vertical searching. And that is you land on a website and then you go to the about page and you see what their mission is and who they say they are. You may look around to see what kinds of information they have on the site. Do the claims that they make have good evidence to back them up, right? You can get stuck in looking on a website forever. <laughs> and if someone wants to mislead you, they're going to. They're not going to say, you know, this, except for a good satire site, they're not going to say that this site is set up to mislead you and this is all a load of bunk. They're going to be a good mimic. 
So instead, do something called lateral searching, which is literally opening up a new tab and then search the claim, search the site, and then try and determine, um, look at what other reliable sources have to say. And by the way, Wikipedia is a good source to go to, especially for these initial searches. If you don't know anything about a claim or a site, Wikipedia is a good first place to start. Not the end, good first place. Okay. So let's say, for example, that like I just saw a claim yesterday about what was happening with the shooting. That sounds a little iffy to me. So first thing is my skeptical radar has gone off and that's really important. It's hard to do when it confirms your bias, when it makes you emotionally triggered and when it's repeated, but it made me skeptical. So I went to Google and I typed in a claim and I wasn't seeing anything. This was last night. I wasn't seeing anything related to this claim. This morning I did it again and up popped Snopes with rumor alert. So Snopes is aware of this claim and is showing me so far the research that they are doing into this claim, what they know about it so far. And they're telling me this claim is still unsupported. We're looking into it. Stay tuned for more later. And that's a problem with these fast moving situations is that it can take time to debunk claims. Um, a lie is, um, uh, what is, is it? It travels around the world before the truth gets its shoes on. Yeah. It's always attributed to Mark Twain, but it's never Mark Twain. Right. But yeah. So it's like, misinformation as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what we want to do is hold our horses, rush, don't rush to judgment, wait until somebody has good information. And that's these fast moving situations for other things. It's a bit easier. Like if something has been around for a while and you see it popping up on your newsfeed, again, first thing is be skeptical. Second thing is open up a new tab, laterally search it. What do other reputable sources say? It's a good trick to learn what sources are more reputable than others in your lateral searching. But uh, the Stanford Media Group has done some great research into this and has found that lateral searching is the fastest. It is the most reliable method of fact-checking. Do not waste your time on a particular site. You will probably be fooled and you'll waste time. That's a really, really interesting technique. I hadn't heard of it before this conversation. So uh, a lot of value there for me. One other thing I wanted to ask was how you inoculate your students against misinformation, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Can you uh, elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah. So um, inoculation theory is the idea that it's kind of like a vaccine, but for misinformation. So you expose people to bits of misinformation and then in the real world, their body, their mind can recognize the misinformation and then not fall for it. So it's basically having a good mental immune system. And with inoculation theory, there's different kinds of inoculation. So there's passive inoculation. Like I could explain to you why what you believe is misinformation or why something is misinformation. That's passive. There is logic-based, which I'm a huge fan of. That would be like, here are the logical fallacies behind this particular argument. This is why this is a not a good argument. But I have uh, students engage in what I call what is active inoculation, which is creating misinformation. And so by creating misinformation, they basically build their own mental antibodies against misinformation so they can spot it in the real world. So for example, I teach students how to cold read like a psychic does so that they can identify psychics and astrologers and so on. I teach students how to they make advertisements for health pseudoscience products. 
you know, like supplements or uh, protein uh, muscle building powders and stuff using all the tools of the techniques of pseudoscience. Alpha uh, male vitality pills that uh, increase your immune system, all natural. GMO free. Yeah. Yeah. I've been used for centuries by, yeah, definitely. I also teach them how to make conspiracy theories, make the most out there conspiracy theory you can possibly make and then find evidence for it. And they're so funny. They're like, professor, do I have to find good sources for this? Like, no, that's how you feel this class. Go to a subreddit and find me something like some random YouTube video. Yeah. So find evidence for it. And then uh, get the floater acronym. We don't need that right now. (laughs) (laughs) go to the underbelly of the internet. And then I have other students try and prove them wrong. So by doing that, they can then see this conspiratorial thinking and how it works and how dangerous it is. So yeah, I have them do uh, various activities where they create misinformation so that they can spot misinformation. There's games where they can do this, like for your audience, um, Cranky Uncle is a great game that teaches the techniques of science denial. There's Get Bad News, which is a great um, one for fake news. I have several listed on my website as well. I compiled a a grouping of them. They're fun. They're engaging. And you learn by doing so. I just love this concept of just like teaching people how to think about this stuff rather than here's the list of facts from the textbook, though, just going back to that. I love that philosophy. Melanie, let's take this thing home. What's the main takeaway you want listeners to remember from our conversation today? Be skeptical. Remember that you can be fooled. You are the easiest person to fool. Think about how you're thinking. And there can be real harm to falling for misinformation. So learning to think critically and being skeptical are empowering. It is not easy. It takes a lot of work, but it is absolutely worth it. And how can listeners get in touch or learn more about your work? So my website is thinkingispower.com. And I post regularly on Twitter at Thinking Powers and Facebook at Thinking Powers. All right, Melanie, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. It was a blast. Uh, Again, that was Melanie Trisic-King, Associate Professor at Biology at Massasoit Community College. You can find a link in the description of this episode. Thanks for listening to Talking Threat Intelligence. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to episodes. And if you'd like more insights on building a successful threat intelligence program, be sure to check out our resource page at liferafinc.com slash blog. That's liferafinc.com slash blog. And I hope you tune in next time.